I'm Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow at Hudson Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to a book event, uh, a discussion of a book which I feel very much uh, is not only wonderfully researched and tells an absolutely fascinating and really, up until now, unknown story about the foundations of American foreign policy after World War II, but also one that's very timely as well. Uh, and the book, as you know, Harry and Arthur, Truman, Vandenberg, and the partnership that created the free world. Uh, it's just out from Potomac Books. Potomac Books. And its author, Larry Haas, is our guest uh, for this morning. Larry Haas, a uh, former White House communications strategist and award-winning journalist. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the U.S. Foreign Policy, for U.S. Foreign Policy at the American Foreign Policy Council. Uh, he's a columnist and author. has a twice-weekly column for U.S. News on, US, on foreign policy issues. Uh, he's quoted often in newspapers and magazines, more than I'm going to have to list. Uh, Wall Street Journal, all New York Times, Washington Post, the run, the full run. Um, he's written uh, another very interesting book, um, which is on L.I. Help. Yeah, what? yeah, it's there sounding somewhere. the trumpet was the title. Sound, sound the trumpet, which is about U.S. efforts to promote freedom and democracy. And democracy, that's right. Uh, since World War II. Since World War II, mm -hmm. um, which is a which is a book which got a lot of praise and has been a very influential in, in many sectors. Uh, this book, however, has a special resonance for me. Um, in part because it touches on a period and a subject around which I've written two books myself, but also because, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think it has an enormous timeliness uh, as a way of understanding not only the predicament in which we find ourselves today in terms of U.S. foreign policy, but also maybe, possibly, uh, the road back or the road out, depending on your perspective, right. how to fix American foreign policy and its and its contradictions and its conundrums. Now, Larry, from that point of view, one of the things I think a lot of people feel about in looking at U.S. foreign policy and where we stand in the world, they look back over the last seven years. Some want to look back further than that, want to go back really to let's say the last 15 years, and who say that we are in a hell of a fix the United States has never been faced with so many complex challenges, has never had so few tools with which to deal with the dangers and difficulties uh, that lie ahead, and that uh, we faced a series of challenges that are really unprecedented America's never had to deal with before. Would you say that that's a historically accurate approach to understanding American foreign policy in the last, in the last uh, 70 years or so? Well, you're getting to my motivations for writing the book. Uh, so I, I wanted to write this book for two reasons. Uh, first reason was because I felt that in uh, recent years, uh, America, to its detriment, has been rethinking its role in the world, the role that we're going to talk about, that Truman and Vandenberg helped bring to fruition. But secondly, I really wanted to explode to your question two myths about the current era. Um, one, that it's never been more partisan, and two, that we have never faced such a dramatic set of challenges, both at home and abroad, um, 
and both of those uh, are not remotely true, particularly when stacked up against uh, the late 1940s. And I'll just tell you very briefly why I feel that way. So picture this. It's uh, April 12, 1945. Roosevelt dies and in, in essence leaves a world in turmoil to this brand new novice president, Harry Truman. He's been in office uh, as vice president for 82 days. He's only met with Roosevelt twice and never on foreign policy. So he knows nothing about what Roosevelt has promised to Churchill and Stalin. He knows nothing about the conferences. He knows nothing even about the Manhattan Project. Has to be briefed on that. Um, he's, uh, he's presiding over a country that always turned inward after war and, and looked like it was about to do so again. As it did after World War I. As it did after World War I to its great um, detriment. Uh, this was uh, traditional homegrown isolationism that goes back to, Jeff, uh, to Washington's uh, farewell address and his dictum to steer clear of permanent alliances, which we largely did for 150 years. Uh, he uh, was looking at a Europe that was flattened, uh, both in terms of its infrastructure and its economy, and he was looking at a Soviet Union that, while technically an ally, was quickly becoming a very aggressive new adversary that clearly had the means, if we were to let them, to not only lock up Eastern Europe, but to threaten Western Europe, the Mediterranean, and other parts of the world. And here he's presiding. He's, uh, you know, we are uniquely standing tall, economically and militarily, but we have this tradition of homegrown isolationism, and he's presiding with an opposition that is disgusted with democratic rule and really does not want to cooperate with this new president. This is what Harry Truman and a very enlightened senator by the name of Arthur Vandenberg were facing, a world in turmoil and U.S. national security in great peril. And I would submit to you, Arthur, that um, that is far more uh, perilous and complicated than what we have faced in recent times, though I would not minimize our current problems. No. And the one, other one you could also mention, of course, is what was happening on the other side of the world in Asia. Absolutely. You had the collapse of Japan's empire, but leaving behind the legacy of decolonization, the European colonial empires falling apart, China re reverting back to a state of, state of civil war right. after fighting the Japanese. Enormously complicated situation. Now, you mentioned Arthur Vandenberg. Now, almost everybody who thinks about America the, the reconstruction of American foreign policy after World War II. Uh, the creation, right? That's Dean Acheson's yes, title for his memoirs. As he's, as he's intimately involved, the president, the president at the creation. Uh, everybody knows about Truman's role in this and about the, and the surprising role that he played, as you right. said, considering the fact that he had seemed to have so little experience right. and so little knowledge of what was happening. People talk about the role of the of the Truman team in putting this together, George Marshall and Dean Acheson and George Kennan. The so-called wise men. The so-called wise men. And yet Vandenberg's name rarely pops up. Correct. Which you see often in, not just in the memoirs of people who worked with, who worked with him, 
but also in many of the recent histories, subsequent histories, is seeing him as someone who was kind of a willing camp follower, uh, sort of a bumbling figure, someone who they really had to draw in. He was a former isolationist, someone they had to draw into the discussion, and but really not an integral part of the planning process and the really and, and uh, of a new foreign policy. Now you take a very different view of him. Right. So I was really quite amazed that um, I was the first person to give book-length treatment to Arthur Vandenberg's key role exactly. in this creation of the architecture of the free world. Um, there have been uh, journal articles and, and other short pieces that have looked into his private papers and discussed his role in creating the UN, but this is the first uh, book-length uh, treatment of his role with, uh, with Truman. Um, he's, um, he's really quite a visionary figure, in a sense. He doesn't have, he is not the person of deep thought in a George Kennan sense with his long telegra telegram and his trying to figure out the neuroses behind Soviet behavior, so he's not that. He's far more pragmatic. But what he and, Van and Truman shared was a gut instinct about the Soviet threat, which, by the way, not every American shared, as no. you know, uh, principally Henry Wallace, thinking that the problems were really on the American side, not on the Soviet side, and he had quite a following to him. Truman and Vandenberg shared this gut instinct, and for all of their foibles and faults as human beings, an ability to rise above the noise to rise above the partisanship and to put America's interest um, some, somehow in a separate category on the world stage while the two parties were fighting about domestic policy. And the further we go into the late 1940s, and this book is about, in essence, the spring of 1945 until the summer of 1949, when the bipartisan foreign policy has accomplished most of what it's going to, and Vandenberg, unfortunately, grows ill and then dies two years later. Um, Vandenberg was closer and closer to the White House and the State Department over that four-year period, and they, they call on him more and more as a partner in terms of crafting the policy, and figuring out how they're going to get it through an otherwise difficult uh, Congress. And it's not just on the major elements of the foreign policy that I discuss, uh, which are, in essence, the uh, creation of the UN, the Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan, and NATO. It's other things in between. He played a major role in terms of figuring out Truman's uh, response to the Berlin blockade, uh, where they reach out to him and they they show him the uh, note that Marshall is going to send to his counterpart, the Soviet Union, what's the tone, what's the content. So he becomes more and more a really um, inside consultant uh, to Truman in a way that, um, that people really don't realize. That's remarkable. Yeah, it is. Berlin Barcade one. Yeah. Um, and as you point out, too, at a time when Congress is really deadlocked on domestic issues, you have Robert Taft and the Taft-Hartley Act. You've got so many things that are that are generating, and then the Alger Hiss right. investigation uh, into the questions about Soviet uh, Hiss's role in Soviet spying. So many divisive issues, and to be able to find a way clear on these vital issues must have been 
uh, enormously, enormously important for both for, uh, in terms of Vandenberg's own role as being sort of the point man with this, but also for Truman's team to know that at least they had one ally there who could work with them on this process. Yeah, so let me um, discuss that a little bit. I, I, uh, I laid out, in essence, what Truman and Vandenberg faced on April 12, 1945, when they essentially took over. So let me um, tell you a little bit about the domestic scene, because we think now that our parties are far apart on domestic policy, right? Okay. So Truman comes into office, and he wants to not just cement, but he wants to expand the New Deal. And he tries to do this by announcing the Fair Deal at some point. And it's a, a, a great expansion of, of uh, federal power, far beyond what FDR had accomplished in 12 years. Republicans win control of both houses of Congress in the 1946 election on the platform of cutting spending and taxes by 20%. They could not, the parties could not have been further apart on domestic policy. Beyond that, think about the rhetoric of the day. You know, we, we think that our rhetoric is a little bit rough in terms of uh, partisanship. Nothing like it was in the late 1940s. I mean, the two parties questioned, particularly Republicans questioning Democrats, they questioned not, the, not just their judgment, but their patriotism. I mean, the Republicans basically suggested quite openly that Truman and the Democrats had communist leanings. Uh, at one point, uh, Truman tries to inoculate himself by creating a loyalty program for federal workers. Uh, professors and civil servants and others who come under suspicion lose their jobs. This is all in the late 1940s. This is all before Joe McCarthy has given his first speech on communists in government. In, uh, bless you, in, in 1946, the Republican national chairman referred to that year's congressional elections as a fight between, quote, communism and republicanism. Isn't that remarkable? That's the kind of rhetoric that I would submit to you, even with our harsh politics today. I don't think I don't think you can get away with that, and that's how tough it was back then. And Truman could give as good as he got. Truman in 1948, bitter par partisan. Absolutely, player. Truman in 1948, when he ran for re-election and probably was the only person in America who thought he was going to win, uh, and that includes Best Truman, by the way. Um, Truman referred to his presidential rival, a middle-of-the-road New York governor by the name of Thomas Dewey. He compared him to Adolf Hitler and said that he was a tool of fascist elements within the Republican Party. He said that openly. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes it even more remarkable that Truman was able to build this relationship with a Republican. Yes. And also one who had basically kind of earned his spurs in the 1930s as part of a very different outlook on foreign policy than the one that they were going to be shaping up together. One right. of the remarkable parts about your book is how the two men build that personal relationship. And yet they're so different in their style and their background and other kinds of things. What was the, what was the secret to, to their being able to get along like that? So in terms of their differences and then to the, and then to the secret, um, you know, they grew up similarly. 
both Midwesterners, both born in the spring of uh, 1884, both with a strong Midwestern sense of right and wrong and honesty and integrity, and it did influence their harsh view of the Soviet Union. But as adults, they were remarkably dissimilar, just to give you a few examples. So Truman was quite modest about himself, and when he, um, when something good happened to Harry Truman, he got an award, a plaque, testimonial, he would often write in his letters or his diary, he would write the phrase, ain't that something, S-O-M-P-I-N, ain't that something. Arthur Vandenberg was vain and pompous. He was the exact opposite of Harry Truman in that way. And I'll tell you a very funny anecdote. So Robert Taft, Mr. Republican, uh, has a dinner for Arthur Vandenberg, and he asks his wife, Martha, who had quite the acerbic wit, uh, to butter up Van, uh, Van as he was widely known, butter up Van. And she later wrote, I tried manfully, but he had buttered himself so thoroughly <laughs> that I could not find a single ungreased spot. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Uh, that sounds like her. Yes. Uh, another example, you know, Truman uh, did not care for public speaking, uh, which is why he often spoke off the cuff, particularly in the 48 campaign. Um, if you read his speeches, uh, they don't flow beautifully. Uh, Clark Clifford used to, as he'd say, he was the White House counsel at the time, he used to, as he put it, Trumanize his speeches. He would turn words of many syllables into words of one or two. In his opening address uh, announcing the Truman Doctrine, he says, I called you together here uh, because we face big issues. And then he's got, like, his third or fourth sentence is something like, the national security of the United States is involved. You know, not a very poetic expression. Uh, and Vandenberg was just the opposite. He had these, he used to uh, put in flowery uh, language and phrases, and he used to labor over his speeches for a long time. For the Marshall Plan, he wrote a speech, rewrote a speech seven times. It ran 9,000 words, and he, and he delivered it in an hour and 20 minutes. So in many ways, they were really polar opposites in their style, their personality, their sense of themselves, and all the rest. So what was their secret? Um, well, this is going to sound uh, perhaps a little bit corny, but I have to tell you that they just thought it was too important to fight over foreign policy. They were, they were perfectly comfortable to fight and to allow their parties to fight over domestic policy, and, um, and, and Vandenberg did not stand in the way when they were fighting brutally over taxes and spending and housing and labor policy and all the rest. But the two of them built this relationship on foreign policy, and they were very careful not to go too far. And if one went too far, the other would sort of save the day by bailing them out publicly. If they needed to communicate privately, they would have meetings that people never heard about. Um, but at the end of the day, they just rose above it and they were not going to allow their differences in personality or the partisan politics that were swirling around them deter them from the job at hand. And the job at hand was, in essence, to revolutionize American foreign policy so that it would create and lead the free world on a sustained basis for the first time. 
And I want to take you through that and audience through some of the steps that were involved sure. in, in that in that new role for the United States in the world, a new active, proactive role. Let me just come back to Vandenberg for a, qu for a quick point. And that is, Truman, Truman's clout was based on the fact that he's chief executive. He occupies the White House. Right. What was Vandenberg's clout within the Republican Party? And it, it, we've, we've talked about him as obviously he's, he's Truman's point man dealing with uh, what was, after all, Republican majority Congress. But what was his relationship with, for example, people like Robert Taft uh, and Kenneth Wary and the other sort of key figures in right. the Republican establishment? Okay, so for the entirety of the late 1940s, uh, Vandenberg is either the chairman or, when it's under Democratic control, the senior Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, beyond that, he holds this stature on Republican foreign policy that is the kind of stature that any modern-day senator would envy. It was a national stature uh, such that his major addresses on foreign policy in the Senate and elsewhere were often printed verbatim in the New York Times. They were covered as far west as, as Los Angeles in the Los Angeles Times. Mm -hmm. He would give a major address. It would be covered in the papers in Houston and Des Moines and elsewhere. And it was all a reflection of his dogged work and his increasing emergence as the Republican spokesman. I mean, the only person who really... Um, had a stature that anywhere near him on foreign policy on the Republican side would be John Foster Douglas, who was an outside advisor um, at the time, later became Secretary of State. Um, so I would say the national stature, in combination with the fact that with that stature, he led Republicans on the Hill who were willing to take his lead on foreign affairs, for the most part, although they had plenty of battles over the particulars, for the most part, because, frankly, they had plenty enough to fight with Democrats over on the domestic side. There just wasn't enough time yeah, right. <laughs> to deal with that as well as everything else, I suppose. Um, so we walk through a couple of examples sure. of where ones that you had mentioned where Vandenberg, we can see that Vandenberg uh, Truman partnership in action. Sure. Let's talk about, for example, uh, the creation of NATO. Sure. So listen, um, uh, this, is, um, this is going to be, in essence, the first peacetime alliance that the United States is going to have since almost the founding of the Republic, and it's going to be the first multilateral peacetime alliance probably uh, ever in the country's history. So this is no small deal. And uh, uh, there is opposition in both parties to what exactly is the United States getting itself into and what are going to be its commitments. Mm -hmm. And Vandenberg works very closely with Dean Acheson, who is the Secretary of State at the time, to balance two things. On the one hand, for the language of the North Atlantic Treaty, which is what created NATO, to be strong enough to reassure 
the Western Europeans that will be there if the Soviets move against them, and yet, at the same time, not to be so strong that he'll lose support among his Senate Republican colleagues that were making too much of a commitment. And there were plenty of sessions where he met with uh, Acheson, and they hammered out the particulars of the language. Now, while this is going on, the treaty is being debated over time in the Senate as it's evolving. And Vandenberg is under great pressure from within his own caucus to make sure that he doesn't go too far. And it was quite a balancing act, because here you've got Acheson, whose main job is to make it strong enough to satisfy Truman and our allies in Western Europe. And we've got Vandenberg, who's trying to allow them to do that. But his main job is to make sure that he retains majority Republican support on Capitol Hill. And at the end, they got it done. But it was a lot of hard work. And they, they, you know, there, were, there were a few perils of Pauline moments when it looked like the Europeans were going to be startled or the Republicans were going to walk because either it was too strong or it wasn't strong enough. It was very difficult. And what did they think was going to be the prognosis for it? Once the treaty organization was signed, did they feel that this was one that would be really a founding, as it is today, a, a, a major building block and foundation for America's relationship with Europe? Or was there a sense that this is, this is a temporary arrangement that we've got to pull together in order to deal with a really clear and present danger, which was growing Soviet influence? No, there was a sense that this was going to be long term, which is what made the debates uh, as difficult as they were. Uh, after the uh, treaty was signed, the Europeans did, in fact, ask for arms. Uh, and it was clear that it wasn't going to be the last time they would be asking for arms. So it was very clear we were getting into uh, a long-term relationship. The other thing that makes it clear that this was going to be long-term is the fact that five European countries had already inked among themselves something called the Brussels Pact, which was supposed to be a defense treaty among them. But even as they were signing it, they realized that if they were to have a defense treaty and it did not include the United States, it was not going to be believable to the Soviet Union. So um, we benefited at that time from the fact that unlike today, where we have a multi multiplicity of threats, we benefited from the fact that, the, that people were focused on the singular threat of aggressive Soviet expansionism, in essence. And yet what's so fascinating about this, as Henry Kissinger once pointed out to me, is that the NATO, that the treaty itself, doesn't even mention the Soviet Union. No, it it's does not. not. It, they, they skirted. That was an issue they had to skirt as well, which was that this would deal with any kind of an outside threat aggressive well, threat and that that and this was also a way in which to deal with some in congress who worried if it's too much poised as an anti-soviet threat that'll be act as a provocation Is that's that exactly right and in fact in the in the um in the uh congressional um testimony in the hearings at the senate foreign relations committee uh atchison goes to great pains uh, when he gets questions about why is this targeted at the Soviet Union, he said, it's not. I, I, would, I would invite you to read the treaty. It's, it's targeted against any conceivable outside threat. Now, of course, there's a lot of winking that's going on, but um, that was a way to uh, reassure some Senate Republicans that this was not too aggressive, that the language 
uh, would not, um, in essence, uh, panic the Soviets. And frankly, it was a way for, um, for Truman uh, and his team to send signals to Moscow um, that this is not directed at you. Now, I'm sure they didn't believe that, but, but, there were, but there were motives all around in terms of the actual language that was used in that treaty. It has a certain kind of uh, uh, resonance, doesn't it, when you think about the issue of ballistic missile defense for Eastern Europe, not the issue we've recently gone through dealing with that and trying to reassure the Russians. This is not aimed at, uh, at limiting your nuclear deterrence by providing that kind of... You know, ballistic missile defense for countries like Poland and, uh, and, and the Czech Republic and, uh, and Hungary and Romania. Yes. And you have to walk that fine line between you know what we're really doing, but we're not going to tell you why we're doing it. Uh, exactly. And the only, um, the only painful difference between the two incidents is that, um, uh, that while we, we hung tough in the late 1940s, unfortunately, I would suggest to you, we did not hang tough in the more recent period, and we backed down over missile defense, and I don't think that was a good idea. I have to agree with you on that. But let's think about the other example sure. that you mentioned. Of, and again, key for constructing... America's new role in, in post-war world and also the relationship with Europe, Marshall Plan. Right. So this is, um, this is a rather astonishing initiative when you consider the amount of money involved and the size of the federal budget during that period. Uh, and uh, so I'll just say that it wound up at about $13 billion, which was real money back then. Uh, the entire federal budget was something in the order of about $30 billion. Now, this was $13 billion over three and a half years, so it's not a one-to-one -one comparison. But you still get a sense of a one-time appropriation that equals half of the federal budget in a single, a single year. That, that's an astonishing amount of money. Uh, with regard to Vandenberg's role, so uh, two main um, themes of opposition that he had to deal with. One is America should not do this simply because we're just getting too deep into Europe's affairs. But then more importantly, um, the second one, which is we may not be able to afford this. This may collapse our economy. So key role that Vandenberg played was in, in essence balancing the needs of Europe against the political possibilities on Capitol Hill. And one of the first things that he demands of the White House is that it set up a committee to evaluate our ability to make this expenditure. And the committee, uh, Truman has, in essence, no choice because he needs Vandenberg's support, and he does set up this committee, and it's under the direction of Averill Harriman, and it has, it's a blue-ribbon group of about a dozen people, and they, in essence, evaluate our capacity to make a major expenditure to rescue Europe's economy over the course of the next three or four years. And the report comes back, and it reassures people that, yes, we do have the wherewithal to do this. So that's one key thing that Vandenberg did, and he promoted this report among his colleagues and all the rest. But the, the second thing beyond that was actually more specifically the politics of the money. Truman wants all the money up front. Vandenberg, over time, finally convinces the White House, and they 
finally relent, and at the time, Robert Lovett is playing a key role in marshalling the, uh, no pun intended, the Marshall Plan through, through Congress. Um, he finally, uh, Truman finally relents through Lovett and agrees with Vandenberg's demand to, while we can authorize the program up front, we need to allocate the money on a year-by-year -year basis. And that is Vandenberg understanding the politics on Capitol Hill and noting we're not going to get the Marshall Plan unless we do this in incremental stages. And it was masterful politics to assure the Europeans that they get the money, but to assure his Republican colleagues that it wouldn't bankrupt us in any single year. Right. And well, so why was Truman so keen on having the money up front? I'm curious. Because he wanted to signal the Europeans that they were going to get the money. Wow. He, was, he, was, he was working with his allies, and the Western Europeans were in dire straits, and they were very nervous. And remember, the Western Europeans still had very bitter memories of post-World War I. And at each stage of the creation of this revolutionary new American foreign policy, the Europeans were questioning the Americans, are you really going to do this? On the Truman Doctrine, are you really going to follow through? And they do follow through in the first stage with aid to Greece and Turkey, which are under um, you know, real communist threat. Are you really going to be there in terms of providing the funds for the Marshall Plan? Are you really going to back up the North Atlantic Treaty, not just by creating NATO, but by giving us the arms that we need so that we can be a military partner? At each stage, the Europeans are worried that we are going to retreat back to our isolationism. And there was plenty of rhetoric on Capitol Hill to make them suspicious about that kind of commitment, wasn't there? Uh, yes, because the debates were fierce over each element of this uh, new foreign policy. I mean, uh, at the tr uh, rather than the Truman Doctrine and have the United States take the lead to, um, in essence, defend freedom uh, virtually anywhere in the world that we thought we could do so, uh, there were senators like Claude Pepper, many people of more recent vintage may remember Claude Pepper as the defender of Social Security uh, in recent decades. Back then he was a, I don't think it's too much of an overstatement to say he was somewhat of a Soviet sympathizer. He was a senator from Florida. His nickname at the time was Red Pepper. Uh, that, was, that was not a coincidence. But he and others led the fight to try to, um, uh, to, try to uh, convince Congress to, in essence, reject the guts of the Truman Doctrine and let the UN uh, uh, take care of all of this, even though, frankly, the UN did not exist in any real sense. It was a shell that only American leadership could actually push forward. Um, so the Marshall Plan goes through. It, too, becomes now a foundation stone of American foreign policy. The foreign aid. In the, in and also not just to Western Europe. And we often yes. we think about countries like uh, France and Germany and Britain uh, and Italy as, uh, as primary beneficiaries. But when the net was originally cast for, you know, for, for those who'd be interested in getting those funds. That included Eastern Europe and, and, and the Russia, too, right? With regard to the Marshall Plan? Yeah. Yes, in fact, um, uh, there was a debate in the White House as to what we should do with regard to uh, offering up the Marshall Plan 
uh, to Eastern Europe because by then it was already under Soviet control and there was a real debate as to should we invite the Soviets to take advantage of this? And Marshall asked his staff and George Kennan, the famous Sovietologist, says, let's play it straight and invite them because there is no way the Soviets are going to open their books and show us how bankrupt they are. And so um, Marshall uh, enunciates uh, his plans for the Marshall Plan uh, in a speech at Harvard's commencement in June of 1947. And initially, uh, two uh, Eastern European countries want to participate. I believe Poland and Czechoslovakia, if memory serves two, me. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they, um, in essence, say yes. You could use and, some money too, exactly. Uh, yes, and shortly thereafter, Moscow uh, basically said, you are going to have to reverse yourself. We are not going to be participating. And instead of participating in the Marshall Plan, uh, in essence, the Soviets form an Eastern European alliance as a counterpoint to the Marshall Plan, further dividing the world in two. By 1949, most of the key, not just Marshall Plan and NATO, but other elements we we're, we're not going to have time to discuss, but you talk about it in the book, yes. where that new proactive, engaged American foreign policy are in place. Then in 1949, um, Vandenberg begins to become ill. Yes, he gets cancer. And how, how did that reduce his effectiveness? And how can we, do we see a relationship between Vandenberg's sort of declining health and declining influence in the rise of increasing partisanship with regard to foreign policy at about the same time. Because we've got the coming of the war in Korea right. in, in, in June of 1950. Right. We have the blowback from the Alger Hiss revolu uh, revelations and then his conviction for perjury. We've got a lot of stuff that's coming down the pike. And, and I'm wondering where we see Vandenberg's hand is either strong or weak in that period that follows his diagnosis. Yes, and I would just say uh, we also have the who lost China. Oh, yeah, of course. Which, which occurs in 1940. Usually important, too. Uh, Vandenberg gets sick uh, in the second half of 49. He's suffering from cancer. He, um, he can spend less and less time uh, in the Senate. Uh, by 1950, he is um, kind of commuting between hospitals in Michigan and hospitals in Washington and convalescing at home uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and also spending as much time as he can uh, in the Senate. Uh, by the second half of 1950, he's really not showing up in the Senate anymore. And while he retains his spot on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, he, uh, he gives up his participation in other committees and declines to the point where he finally uh, succumbs to cancer in April of uh, 1951. Through the course of Vandenberg's increasing absences, foreign policy, I would submit to you not coincidentally, loses its bipartisan veneer and becomes increasingly partisan 
over both the particulars of difficult issues like China and Korea and others, but also um, it loses its sense of national unity, the sense of these, th this peril is too great, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be coming apart over this. Um, and I'll just climax the story by saying that I think the following is not coincidental. In April, as you know, because you've got a book coming out on Douglas MacArthur, in, in April of 1951, um, Macar uh, Truman finally has had enough of Douglas MacArthur and fires him as the uh, commander of our forces uh, in Korea. Uh, that's around, is it April 10th, April 11th? Okay, April 12th. Uh, Vandenberg dies on April 18th. On April 19th, Douglas MacArthur speaks to Congress in his you know, return to the United States, his heroic speech, old soldiers don't die, they just fade away, the whole bit. And at the time, leading Republicans, and I mean the leadership of both the Senate and the House, is talking about impeaching Harry Truman over his firing of Douglas MacArthur. I don't think Vandenberg's absence is coincidental to that. I really think that it left a major void that either no one on the Republican side was either willing or perhaps able to fill. And particularly about that issue which became uh, highly divisive, the firing of MacArthur, um, you and I may possibly disagree on who was in the right and who was in the wrong with regard um, to the firing. But you know what? We're awaiting your book. Well, and we'll do a, we'll do a session on that. Excellent. We'll do a session on that. However, my question, I do have a question for you, a, a what if uh, kind of question. Um, as you know, Vandenberg had been Douglas MacArthur's semi-official, unofficial campaign manager when yes. Douglas MacArthur was thinking about running for president in 1944. Yes. I don't think the relationship was close at all. Right. Um, but at the same time, uh, he is uh, someone who sees MacArthur, as most, almost every Republican did, as America's most distinguished soldier, as a man who, uh, if he wasn't certainly fit for the White House, was certainly fit for supreme command in any kind of role right. he would play. And then how do you think, I'm just going to ask you to sort of to, to think about this as a what if, how do you think Vandenberg would have come down on the question of the firing and of the process that was led to that? And here's why I pose that question. Because from my standpoint, the firing of MacArthur was a failure on the part of the Truman administration to find a way to deal with this, with the issues, the really fundamental issues that divided MacArthur and Truman administration, namely the question of pushing, pressing on to victory versus accepting a stalemate uh, along the 38th parallel or as close to it as you can get. Um, I think one of the great wasted moments in history was the meeting on Wake Island, mm -hmm. in which some of those issues could be sorted out. But Truman's approach to Wake Island was, let's get this over with. I don't want to talk about anything yes. substantive with it. Right. Get me out of here pronto. And, 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 and MacArthur's attitude was the same. He resented being brought out right. several thousand miles away from his command post in order to deal with what he thought was a campaign stunt. So is it possible that, number one, that, that Vandenberg would have said, don't fire him? And, of course, there were a lot of people on Capitol Hill who were shocked and horrified when, they, when 
when MacArthur was fired? Or number two, do you think it's possible that the process of either working on a rapprochement with MacArthur or relieving him from command in ways that wouldn't have sent national and international shockwaves if Vandenberg had been more involved? You know, uh, Vandenberg um, did not cooperate with the White House on every matter of foreign policy. And one of the key ones that he decided should be just administration policy as opposed to bipartisan policy uh, was, in fact, the whole issue of China, which is, of course, related to Korea. Um, and when he thought something was um, administration policy as opposed to uh, bipartisan foreign policy, he pushed it aside. He, um, he used to meet uh, evenings uh, at his apartment at the Wardman Hotel, which still exists, uh, room 500G. He used to meet there with Robert Lovett. They'd have daily meetings, uh, evening meetings, and these, were, these became, they used to joke about the 500G meetings. Mm -hmm. And the reason I mention this is that they spoke at great length about the things that they were working on together. The UN had already been set up. The Truman Doctrine had already been enunciated. But the Marshall Plan and then the North Atlantic Treaty. So they met over the course of a couple of years. Lovett had different roles uh, from time to time. Um, and Vandenberg uh, built that close working relationship both with, uh, uh, with Lovett, but also at different times with Atchison and Marshall. But Lovett uh, recalled that Vandenberg said to him, now, China, that's, that's, that's with General Marshall, that's with President Truman, that's your business. Uh, but this other stuff that we're working on, I want to know what the hell is going on around here. And Lovett would come to him and he'd show him the latest cables on this and that on the foreign policy major elements that, that we're discussing here today. So on the one hand, I don't know that he would have been giving very strong advice about what he ought to be doing towards MacArthur. On the other hand, Vandenberg had a very strong sense of the proper roles and responsibilities of the two branches. And while it was very highly politically charged at the time, I think he would have been a little bit uncomfortable with the ferocity of the Republican response to the president's decision as the commander-in-chief as to what to do. I think so. It's very difficult, needless to say, to predict. But there's something about that ferocity and something about my sense of Vandenberg in how much, how careful he was about what the presidency is and what Congress is that makes me feel that he would have been uncomfortable with the very harsh re uh, responses by the House Speaker, Joseph Martin, uh, Senator Taft in the Senate, uh, and some others. And of course, this would have been in the aftermath of what really was his cherished 
bipartisan foreign policy. So just where foreign policy had descended to get to the point where there's this talk of impeaching the president, I think would have made him uncomfortable. That's fascinating. So in a way, it's a combination perhaps of, would have been a combination of his respect for the office? Yes. But maybe also his respect for Truman. Yes. And that if Truman's going to make a call like this, that there may be some underlying good reasons for doing it. And look, he, he respected not just Truman. He had worked closely with his top people, and he really did think highly of them. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's move from history to present day. Okay. Good uh, idea. And let's think about, if, if that's not too dismal a subject to sort of deal with, and I'm thinking about it from the point of view of, let's say, the project, let's call it Reconstruction of American Foreign Policy. I don't want you to go into particulars at all, but I want you to think about just the issues that we're, we've been discussing with regard to temper of the times, uh, partisanship, uh, complexity of the situation we face. After all, one could argue that they had it easy in 1945, 46, 47, because they were dealing with basically a bipolar right. world. Now we confront a foreign policy that has, a multi, that has to have a multipolar bias in terms of dealing and balancing interests. Um, that period that you describe in this book so well kind of uh, epitomizes the old idea. I call it an old idea. Uh, maybe it's not that old, maybe it really arose in those moments. And the idea that at foreign policy, you know, that the, the partisanship stops at the water's edge, the water's edge being the edge of foreign policy. That however the huge expression. And that, but on foreign policy, a consensus not only does exist, but must exist right. in order for the United States to be strong. Let me ask you that. This is what they're all here to hear you weigh in on. Is such a reconstruction of U.S. foreign policy on a bipartisan basis possible? And where would you, you've worked in the White House, you know a lot about politics and how it works in this town, where would you see sort of the starting points for, for building that, if it is possible to build it? Okay, so there are multiple levels to this. And I would, let me take the, um, what I think is the one that gets the least attention um, and maybe the easiest one to start. And that's with the particular individuals uh, who are in particular places, which I think leads to opportunity. No matter who the next president is, no matter who he or she may turn out to be, if you look at the two foreign affairs committees on Capitol Hill, I think the ground may be set for a resumption of foreign policy. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Chairman Bob Corker, Ranking Democrat Ben Cardin. These are not fire-eating, fire-breathing partisans. These are both responsible centrists. I think those two people would welcome an opportunity to work with the next president. Look at the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Chairman Ed Royce, Ranking Member Elliot Engel. I would say the exact same thing about those two, okay? Obviously, one's a conservative Republican, one's a liberal Democrat, but they're not fire-breathing partisans. So I think the next president has, at least in terms of personnel, has opportunity. Now, the key question, of course, is going to be where, where do we start? Because we do have, as you say, 
we had the convenience, in a sense, in the late 1940s, to the extent that you thought that there was an enemy, we knew who the enemy was. It was aggressive Soviet communism, expansionism, um, and everything that that entailed. We do need to figure out how we're going to stack up the challenges that we face. There is a legitimate argument for all of the following. Our biggest challenge is rising, great, rising or re-rising great powers, okay? China, Russia. That's a legitimate argument. It is also a legitimate argument to say that our biggest challenge is this global series of networks driven by militant or radical Islam and the combination of that ideology and terrorism that might spring up anywhere. That's a legitimate argument. I think it's also a legitimate argument related to what I just said, but I still think distinct to say that the biggest challenge we face is the potential combination of state sponsors of terrorism, terrorist groups, and potential nuclear weaponry. And that would be headquartered in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, I think all three of those are legitimate. It may be the case that at the end of the day, we need to deal equally with all three, and the next president's going to have to be very facile in doing that. Um, rather than me telling you sort of where I would start, because I think I would have to think a little bit more about that, um, I want to I want to make just one or two more broad points. And I'll try not to get too partisan here as I do so. Um, we we not only knew who the enemy was in the late 1940s, but I would suggest to you that we had a much clearer sense of what side we were on, who our allies were, who our adversaries were, and why they were allies and why they were adversaries. The, the difference between uh, our interests and our values as opposed to the interests and values of our adversaries. We uh, are now, uh, the, in the seventh year of a presidency, in which the incumbent has been trying to share global burdens, not just with our allies, but with our adversaries. And I think it is profoundly naive. It is profoundly naive to think that we have anything in, in, in um, common with Vladimir Putin. Of course, there may be some episodes, there may be some particular places where, yes, things are in US and Russian interests. But for the most part, they're not. For the most part, Vladimir Putin is not going to be a responsible player in the greater Middle East, which for some reason we invited him back into. The Islamic Republic, whether we bribe them with $100 billion or $200 billion, is not going to share our interests, uh, which is why I oppose the Iran nuclear deal. So I think the first step is to have a clearer sense as to who we are, what our interests are, what our values are, and how distinct they are from 
those of our adversaries. If you read the Truman Doctrine speech, he says very clearly there are two systems of government in the world today. One is ours, and these are the benefits of it. Here's the other side, and these are the drawbacks of it. And I think that we feel a reluctance to do that right now, whether it's out of political correctness, it's out of multiculturalism, whatever it is. And if I had to advise the next president, the first thing I would say to him or her is speak clearly and give Americans a sense of who we are, what we value, what our interests are, and who our adversaries are. If we could accomplish that early on, then I think we could then move quickly to appropriate policy to back up um, um, our sense of who we are. Well, I think everybody hopes that we have a president, we emerge with a president in November who will do that. But what you're also saying, and I think is a very important point, is that a president who was willing to do that and to take, have a sort of a more, a clearer picture of who our friends and who our potential foes are, that they would find a lot of support on Capitol Hill. I believe so. I, and that's hugely important. I, I believe so. I, I think, look, obviously, you know, you, you can chalk this partly up to partisanship, okay? I'm not naive. Uh, there is a lot of Republican opposition to what Obama has, has tried to do over the last seven years. But I think it is also rooted, along with partisanship, it is rooted in real concern on the Republican side among very responsible people as to where we're going. Um, I think the dirty little secret is that while Obama has plenty of support on the Democratic side, uh, in, in private circles, there is quite a bit of concern as to what he has tried to do, which is why he had to twist so many arms to get the uh, to, ke to keep Republican, excuse me, to keep Democratic support for the uh, the nuclear deal, um, and some other things that he's uh, done over time. I think there was bipartisan, uh, real bipartisan concern uh, about U.S. credibility, tied closely to uh, where we wound up on the red line on chemical weapons in Syria. I mean, I think that was bipartisan concern. I think it was, a, it was an important moment. Should we take some questions from the I audience? would be delighted to do so. If you, uh, would you just identify yourself and disclose whatever affiliation you care to disclose, and we'll be all set to go. Yeah. We'll start here. Thank you, uh, Abe Shulsky uh, here at Hudson. Uh, just, well, thank you very much for a really interesting discussion. Uh, I want to say one thing for the record, that Truman was not the only person who thought he would win in 1948, because I have a very distinct early, very early political memory of my grandmother saying exactly the same thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. My mother tried to convince her not to get her hopes up, but <laughs> anyway. Um, as, a, as a former Senate staffer, one of the things that impresses me in hearing this whole discussion is, you know, the kind of senator that someone like Vandenberg was. Uh, i.e. a senator who really played a role and in a sense took ownership of areas of, of policy. And, um, you know, we saw that in, in people like Scoop Jackson and Sam Nunn and, and so forth. I mean, right. we've had senators like that since. But uh, maybe it's just, you know, an old timer saying that the young ones don't know what they're doing. But looking at the Senate now, one just gets the sense that 
that the Senate itself doesn't quite take itself as seriously, see itself um, playing playing this kind of role. And uh, I, I'm just wondering if you'd given any thought to the question of what made it possible back then for senators to really be national figures in the way that it's, I think, much harder for a, a senator to be now. And, and the Senate somehow doesn't see itself as playing that kind of role. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's hard. Yeah, part of it, um, I, th I, think, I think it's difficult to disentangle, um, you know, a series of chicken and egg questions. You know, where does it start? The media pays attention or you force the media to pay attention? Um, I'm not quite sure where it started back then, but um, through his dogged work, uh, he attracted a following among not just his colleagues, but among news people. And we did not have this um, kind of splintered media back then, as you know. Uh, we had you know, leading organs of opinion that other media would rally around. Uh, you know, on the print side, it was the New York Times, the Herald Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and, and a few others. Um, when he spoke, uh, people listened, and uh, his remarks were recorded, as I mentioned earlier, literally coast to coast. That is harder for a senator to do now. It is harder for the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to do that now, I think. I think it is more challenging. On the other hand, I still do think it's possible for them to do it. Um, I think that if uh, Bob Corker wanted to devote more time just to foreign policy uh, and less to domestic policy, and after all, Arthur Vandenberg didn't spend much time on domestic policy, um, and he had enough of a following throughout Michigan that he could get away with it. Organized labor was against him, but they couldn't beat him in 1946, even though they threw everything they could at him. Uh, um, but, you know, uh, senators... That's in as, Michigan. Yeah, in Michigan. In Michigan. Yeah, where they were influential. Uh, uh, Some of the auto industry. Right. Um, you know, uh, senators, I don't know, are they more worried about re-election now? They, they seem to be. Uh, if you talk to them, if you talk to staffers like, you know, uh, uh, people like you who have worked up there, you get the sense that it doesn't matter how big the margin of victory was last time. Now the only thing they're worried about is their ideological purity and whether they're going to be primaried, as they put it, uh, you know, in the next election. Uh, by someone who is more pure and they not even get the nomination. Um, so I'm not sure how to disentangle it. Um, I still think there's opportunity, but if someone were to say to me it's much more challenging than when Arthur Vandenberg presided, then I, I, could, I could understand that. Here, and then we'll go there, and then we'll swing back to the other side of the room. Here in front first. Thank you, sir. Steve Landy, Manchester Trade, three very short questions, a few seconds late, so if you covered it early, just ignore it and so on. Um, one, without getting too specific, did you cover all the uh, Vandenberg's position, of course, on the Israeli recognition question? Okay. Right, man? Um, 
one. Two, am I going back, or is it way is back even farther? Was the John Birch Society around back then, or were there any right-wing group back then who would have been yelling, you know, the old isolationists before the war group and so on? Were they involved? And three, was there any linkage between Vandenberg and Fulbright? I know it was 10 years later, so I don't know if there was any uh, linkage or not. Thank you very much. Okay, so let me um, do the best I can. Uh, uh, there were certainly isolationist tendencies back then. There was still a culture, a tradition of isolationism that Vandenberg had to battle that did show up in the in the person of some of his colleagues. And you do see this on the debates over each of the elements of this foreign policy. John Birch is not one of them, but, but this tradition is something that he had to fight all through the late 1940s. Uh, because after all, it was a 150-year heritage of isolationism. Uh, uh, on, uh, on Israel and the recognition, uh, I don't cover it in the book, and I don't think it was a major concern of uh, Arthur Vandenberg. It's certainly, I looked through the uh, papers of Vandenberg, uh, and I have read them 20 times, and I do not believe, if memory serves me, I do not believe it comes up. What was the third thing you asked me? Any relationship with Fulbright? Oh, uh, uh, Fulbright. Yes, actually there was uh, in the creation of the United Nations. Uh, uh, the State Department was doing a lot of work all through the 30s, and then all through the war years to prepare, because this was Roosevelt's vision, we need something to replace the leak, and the, you know, the great powers will maintain the peace and we'll do it through the United Nations. And uh, Vandenberg, through the 40s, became increasingly supportive of this idea, and Fulbright also was increasingly supportive of this idea. So on Senate resolutions and things like that, they wound up, first Fulbright was in the House, then he was in the Senate, but they wound up working a bit together on that issue in particular. On the, uh, in, the, in the late 1940s, um, uh, I don't see much evidence of them working together, although since you mentioned Fulbright, I have to, I have to uh, bring up maybe my, one of my favorite anecdotes in the book. As a sign of Vandenberg's stature, and Truman's weakness after the 1946 elections, remember, we don't have a vice president. So the next person in line was the Secretary of State. And after the election, J. William Fulbright was worried about, um, in essence, gridlock, because we now had a Republican-controlled Congress. And he came out with a proposal that Harry Truman should resign, should, excuse me, should appoint Arthur Vandenberg Secretary of State. Then he should resign so that Arthur Vandenberg would become the President of the United States. At which point, Harry Truman forevermore referred to him as half-bright. That's a hell of a story. Isn't that something? That is. Talk about the, a Rube Goldberg solution Isn't that to, something? to a presidential succession. Because they were worried about gridlock. It'll go here. Thank you very much, and thank you for a marvelous and thought-provoking presentation. I'm John Gizzi uh, from Newsmax and Newsmax Television. Uh, my question is this. You mention the beginning of the anti-communist movement that started, you said, with the Hiss case, and yet the Hiss case that did occur when the Democrats still had control uh, 
or no, it occurred under the Republicans. Before that, uh, Senator Homer Ferguson of Michigan released a list in which he said there were um, 56 security risks in the State Department. This was the Lee list, which the Senate never got around to taking action on. Senator McCarthy, in his speech February 9th, 1950, in Wheeling, when he refers to the card-carrying communists, is actually referring to the Lee list mm-hmm. that Ferguson brought up. My question is this. How did Vandenberg react to his own party going after the administration and the State Department for security risks at the time? And I believe the secretary would have been Burns uh, yes. at that time. Yes. Okay, so this is actually quite fascinating. I don't do too much of this um, in the book, but um, I do know a bit about this uh, from the Vandenberg papers. Um, he, Van, Arthur Vandenberg was very supportive of the post-World War I Red Scare. Isn't that fascinating? He was, uh, he, he, uh, the Palmer raids, and he actually had great sympathy for what the administration of that time was trying to do. He had a great fear of Bolshevism, as many people did in America at the time, and he was the editor uh, of the Grand Rapids Herald uh, and wrote editorials very supportive of what the administration of that time was trying to do to crack down on Bolshevism. Um, I do not, um, frankly, uh, in my research of the late 1940s, um, I just don't see the issue of the Republicans going after the administration um, uh, for its Soviet tendencies uh, come up at all. He does not spend his time in his letters, in his diary, uh, dealing with this. Um, and I don't know if it's, and he certainly didn't talk about it publicly. Now, I don't know if that's because, um, as I suspect it is, um, that he did not want to roil the waters because um, he did not want to do anything to threaten bipartisan foreign policy um, or for other reasons. But, but uh, another uh, anecdote that I uh, write about in the book, which cuts against where the Republicans were is that, you know, Atchison, um, when he was going through confirmation as Secretary of State, um, was dealing with this Hiss issue. And um, they, he meets with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in private session. And the Republicans basically say to him, if you're going to get confirmed, you're going to need to publicly disavow any conceivable sympathy for the communist way of life. And so, you know, he didn't take this terribly seriously because uh, he thought this whole kind of red scare in the late 1940s was was silly. He referred to it as the revolt of the primitives. Um, But he did, but he did, he did understand the politics. And when they go back into public session, he issues a statement making very clear the distinction between the Western way of life and the Soviet way of life. And who drafted that statement for him in private? Arthur Vandenberg, interestingly enough. 
real quick, yes. how, did, how did Vandenberg get along with Homer Ferguson? Because Ferguson later becomes a, a McCarthy stalwart. Yes, so um, I, um, I, I can't um, answer that question with any great knowledge because it just doesn't come up in, uh, in the papers and uh, in anything else that I read. Yeah. I mean, maybe the. I, I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with the name, but I just don't recall uh, a Vandenberg connection. With him, in my even research. though they were both senators, Republican senators from Michigan. That's right. Yeah. Right. We got two questions here. Here to the front, and then there. Yeah. Front, front, front here first. Uh, thank you for coming. My name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Japan native, U.S. citizen. Uh, two questions. Uh, number one, can you comment on the uh, relationship between uh, Truman and Stalin? Because I suspect that Stalin wanted, wanted a piece of uh, cake, meaning piece of Japan. Mm -hmm. So you, if you can comment on that, I appreciate it. Number two, you already uh, commented <coughs> on the uh, uh, relationship between MacArthur and, and, and uh, Truman. My question is hypothetical, but uh, what if MacArthur became a president, then what? That's kind of a hypothetical question, but uh, probably you can't answer. But when you say what, uh, when you say uh, what if, do you mean what if in a broad sense, or do you mean what if in terms of working with Vandenberg? Oh, what if in general? Okay, okay. Well, I presume he means in 1948, uh, in 44. Yeah, he ran in 44. 44. And, you mean in 1944? But MacArthur's main push was after he came back from Korea in 52. Right. Um, okay. So uh, first, uh, Truman and Stalin. Okay. So uh, he meets uh, Stalin for the first time at Potsdam, which is in late July of uh, 1945. And it's a little bit odd because he sizes him up and he actually finds, this is Truman, finds some things to like. Uh, his, uh, his sense of culture, his straightforwardness. He's got some hopes of uh, actually doing some business with Stalin. Now, I will say to his great credit, uh, that did not last long. He had a very clear sense of what Stalin was doing around the world. And, uh, you know, they negotiate a bit in Potsdam, and the negotiations are very, very difficult. And he clearly sees that this is a person who's going to be trouble, and we have to figure this out. So, um, so he had a, other than a few bouts of perhaps naivety, um, I think he had a very clear sense of Joseph Stalin from the start. And to the extent that um, he needed any convincing, he had plenty of uh, clear-eyed uh, hardliners around him, uh, from Dean Atchison to Averill Harriman to George Kennan to Will Clayton to George Marshall. He had plenty of people advising him who had a very clear sense of the Soviets and led by Stalin. Um, I don't know what to do exactly with your question about if MacArthur became uh, president. Um, let, me, let me frame it slightly differently, okay? Just slightly differently. We, we, we think about the bipartisanship of this 
of, that emerges after World War II. And what you've done in your book is really sort of say a lot of this hinges on two personalities, two right. people, uh, Truman and Vandenberg. Um, to what degree would a different combination have perhaps imperiled this overall discussion? I mean, is it something, I guess I'm asking a question that has to go with the whole issue of, of, of how these great historical trends develop. Was it one in which the force of events, the advisors around them, forced these two men to confront and say, you know what, as you were saying before, this is too important. Is that a decision just about anybody would have made under those circumstances? Or is it something that sprang from those two men, their clear-eyed view of the world and the relationship which sprang up between them that made that bipartisanship possible? I, I do not think that um, uh, the transformation of American foreign policy was inevitable. Um, I just don't buy the idea that any two other people would have done this. What if, what uh, if, for example, Roosevelt had lived? Well, it's a very interesting question because uh, Vandenberg, through the uh, through World War II, and even up to the day that uh, Roosevelt died, when you read his private papers. He is repeatedly complaining about Roosevelt's appeasement of Stalin. Repeatedly complaining about that. Now, uh, if you read the closely the history of sort of that February, March, April period, you see very strong evidence that Roosevelt is coming to the realization. Mm -hmm. That, that he cannot do business with Stalin. In fact, three, to, three weeks before he died, he gets a cable from Stalin that really makes him hit the roof, and he starts banging the side of his wheelchair, and he says, Averill was right. We can't do business with Stalin. He's broken all of his promises that he made at Yalta. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very interesting moment. So, you know, what ifs are difficult. It looked like Stalin was coming along, I, excuse me, that Roosevelt was coming along on, on Stalin. But unlike Truman, Roosevelt had this undying faith in his own charm. I was just going to say. His, an undying faith. I mean, um, a modern politician like that would be Bill Clinton. You know, an undying faith. I'll talk them into this. They'll, I'll figure out a way. We'll get around this. I'll sweet talk them. So I don't know what to do with what would have, where, where the balance would have been. Is it the, the, the reality of brutal Soviet communism or Roosevelt's charm? What would have, would have won, won out? out? I, I, I don't know, but he clearly was coming around on Stalin. Then we'll go to the one at the back. Uh, Mark Wall, former uh, U.S. Uh, State Department. Uh, could you comment a bit more on kind of the uh, how did Vandenberg deal with, get along with some of the other leading congressional Republicans, uh, Robert Taft in particular? Uh -huh. Okay, so Taft is probably the most important figure to deal with in terms of uh, his relations with his colleagues. They... Um, they, they had both competition and cooperation. And um, the overall story, the most important thing was that they ceded territory to each other. 
Vandenberg ceded domestic policy to Robert Taft. And he was very solicitous. And in fact, he made sure that um, Truman treated Taft with the respect that he deserved. In exchange for that, Taft ceded foreign policy to Arthur Vandenberg. Now, that does not mean that he did not go to the floor and debate that he didn't, you know, debate Arthur Vandenberg. And in fact, he wanted to slim down the Marshall Plan. He wanted to provide less money than uh, Truman wanted and that Vandenberg was supporting. So they had good debates, but, um, but they, they learned uh, to respect one another and to cede the leadership on, on one side, Taft on domestic, and on the other side, uh, Vandenberg on foreign. With regard to other Republicans, um, Vandenberg was not easy. Um, he could be difficult. He had this, um, he had this um, just very interesting combination of sincerity and pomposity. Uh, sincerity in the issues and the importance of what he was dealing with to America's security and pomposity as the senior Republican on foreign affairs who wanted to be treated by the White House with the respect that he deserved at every single moment. And when he felt that he was dissed, he got very upset and he would complain bitterly to the president himself or to Dean Acheson or George Mitchell and there, uh, George Marshall. And there, were, and there were moments when he felt the need um, to do that. Um, he got, so, so there were other senators who um, found him difficult. But, you know, among the key ones, he built the relationships that he needed, whether it was Robert Taft or it was Charles Eaton, who was the Republican, uh, top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and an important colleague when, when issues were bouncing between the two chambers. We've got time for one more to the back. Anything more you could comment on regarding the influence of the business and religious communities of the, that time? How significant a voice did they have at that time in the discussion? And in particular, Truman establishing a new relationship with the Vatican. How did you view that new partnership? Okay, so I can't speak to the particulars of the Truman uh, uh, relationship with the Vatican. I can tell you that those two communities were extremely influential um, on different aspects of this. The religious community, on pushing the White House to take a hardline view towards the Soviets from a religious and a humanitarian standpoint. I mean, the, you know, the Soviets did not um, did not support religion. They opposed religion. Their religion was communism. They did not uh, want to see the free flowering of Christianity or Judaism or anything else that was an ideology that would compete with, uh, with communism. On the with regard to the business community, they played in a really important role at different moments because um, they contributed, for instance, to the committee that Truman set up to see if we could afford the Marshall Plan. And they contributed to um, just providing other kinds of advice as to why it was important that the United States help Western Europe rebuild itself. They helped the White House build a national constituency for, in essence, prosperity, not just in America, but prosperity around the world 
in the self-interest of the United States. Uh, uh, support for not just the military alliances, but for the new trade regime, the new currency regime, you know, Bretton Woods coming out of World War II and all the rest. So those two communities were influential in the key elements of the foreign policy that this book is about. You know, the uh, English historian Edward Maitland used to tell his students, he said, it's always difficult but important to remember that events that are now in the past were once in the future. And the element of contingency, of uncertainty in the emergence of the big events that have shaped the world, have shaped the United States, it's always important to remember that they were once in the future. Right. And that individuals had to weigh risk versus opportunity, obstacles versus pressure and forces leading them towards decisions in order to make final decisions. And, and in fact, Arthur, um, if I could just interrupt for one second, um, there, was a, there was a very fierce debate over the precise in the White House and the State Department over the precise language of the Truman Doctrine. You, know, you sort of say, well, the president gives a speech and his speech writers craft it. Boy, I have to tell you, there were, you know, George Marshall and Charles Bolin and George Kennan were very worried about the precise language that Truman was going to use and how Stalin would react to it. And George Kennan actually said, um, I'm worried that this is going to launch World War III. Kennan said this. Kennan said this. Oh, I mean, it, these things don't happen automatically. A bipartisan foreign policy doesn't happen right. automatically. It comes through a series of decisions, how men and women weigh the options, and finally, the judgment call that arises from it. And this book, I think, is a wonderful example of what Maitland was getting at, that we realize these things happen and could happen in very different ways if men and women hadn't made the decisions that they did right. and formed the relationships that they did. Right. Terrific book. Get it. Read it. It's going to be around for a long time. Let's hope. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Larry. That was terrific.